0: Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is Jay David Osborne and that is Chris Sackness I'm Chris. How are you doing this evening?
1: Well I'm very well, David. Thank you very well. Got a good report on my mother's hospitalization. She's going to be due out tomorrow and um, she's looking pretty strong. so uh, we're very grateful for that. And mm-hmm. uh, thanks to some of our listeners who have uh, been well-wishers. Uh, she is 93 um, and she's currently working on an adaptation of the Mark Twain story, The Million Dollar Note. So it's exciting to see someone still cranking out some cool stuff.
0: Absolutely. I was really happy to hear that news. I had her in my prayers personally because, uh, you know, it's it's serious business, you know, at any age, what she's going through right now. But uh, to hear that she's pulled through the way that she has is really remarkable. And, um, yeah, from the stories that you've told me about your mother, she seems like a uh, just a pretty amazing character.
1: She truly is. She truly is. Um, you know, that old saying, they don't make people like that anymore. I, I really am afraid that's right. It's um, She's a trooper in that old stage sense. Um, she's always been involved in music and theater. But she just, you know, the show must go on. And mm-hmm. I, I think some of those values of the Eastman School of Music and the Oberlin Conservatory of Music that's real stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm really proud of her, but thank you very much. Uh, I think, you know, prayers and good vibe, um, that they matter. That's kind of one of the things that we we're we're talking about with our idea of a magical community is that I do think we give each other strength, you know, mm-hmm. I really do. I think
0: so too. I think that one of the unfortunate things that's happened in the past decade or so is that, the term thoughts and prayers has been co-opted by politicians to essentially mean we're not going to do anything about this. Um, and you know, that's been adopted by people into a sort of rhetorical, uh, response to that, which is, you know, we don't want your thoughts and prayers. We want you to do something, but that unfortunately, uh, it kind of ignores the, the things that actually, that prayer can actually do that. If you look at some of the the books like Power of Eight and, you know, uh, some of the studies that have been done with, you know, placebo and and control groups and one group uh, getting prayed for and the other. um, It does something. It works.
1: It absolutely does work. And I, I think at some point we'll get around to the larger topic of the prejudice against thought Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and thought is is the opposite of action, which I think is just a terrible, terrible uh, mistake in, in cultural judgment. And it's something that I've been touching on uh, in my uh, writing and imagination textbook, because it, it's something that all thinking uh, creative people run up against. You know, um, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Well, you're just thinking, you know, right. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's where the whole world came from. That's where that's where all of the great innovations have come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this idea that somehow thought isn't physical, well, that's just simply bad physics. We know that's not true. It's its incredible. I mean, look at an MRI, you know? Right, um, right. Well, so there are some interesting things to unpack with that, but I think there is a kind of, uh, as you say, a... Uh, a feeling of denigration of that expression and that that channel of belief, which is really unfortunate because it is very powerful and it's very real.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So, Chris, um, we sort of talked on the last episode about what we were going to get into today. But as per the normal format for this podcast, I figured I would ask you and we get it kicked off. What are we going to talk about today?
1: Okay. Well, we're emerging into a, a new series and, and to some extent a slightly uh, modified approach of, of maybe doing a little bit deeper diving in, into topics uh, in, in different forms and frames. But our ongoing theme is, is, is the, a project of, of re-enchanting culture and really dealing with a kind of spiritual malaise that has taken over modernity. And we looked at, in an earlier series, the work of Charles Fort, uh, the idea of damned facts and anomalies and folk beliefs, and how those relate to science and what we've called scientism, which is an unfortunate social philosophy that kind of worships science unquestionably. Uh, without really allowing for the inquiry and the skepticism that that is what real science uh, has to do with. So we're going to examine some folk beliefs. I think that's a fair enough category label. Um, And I thought we might kick off just talking about something that is back in the news, as I personally predicted it would be. It It never entirely goes away, but I think it comes back from time to time, and it's um, the UFO phenomenon. Um, And I did go back and I had a look at um, Carl Jung's book on UFOs as a modern myth. We've often mentioned Jung and have a great respect for him. Um, I think that's a very, very interesting uh, study into the UFO phenomenon. Um, So I thought we might start with that and, and use that as a way to sort of peel back and to examine some other beliefs um, both very fun and also maybe a couple of darker ones to to get an idea of what does a modern myth look like i don 't think anyone could have been better to talk about that than Jung you know so what is that uh, how do you think about that
0: I think that sounds really great i I saw a meme recently uh, about Carl Jung that was talking about how he essentially used powers of, you know, meditation and depth psychology to create this sort of entire mythic structure. Right. And then it compared it with modern psychologists with said, which uh, say something to the effect of, uh, tell me about your problems and I'll, I'll write you a script for a pill. And I just yes. I thought that was a very humorous analysis of kind of where these thinkers were, um, back in Jung's day. And creates a a good contrast with where we sort of are now not that there's nobody out there doing things like what Jung did but um he's very unique in that he had this private life um that he didn't want anybody to know about while he was alive for the most part he kind of ordered his um his red book to be sealed up after his death um and once that was you know taken out of storage and put into one of those beautiful i have one of the uh it kind of looks like a bible it's kind of bound up like a like a bible uh once that was kind of exhumed right uh you found out just how just how truly bizarre this guy was um even outside of some of the crazier things in i'm thinking of uh some dreams that he recalls in in man and his symbols right with uh you know giant uh giant phalluses on thrones and, uh, you know, God defecating on a church and all sorts of <laughs> very surreal Some
1: crazy, stuff. crazy thing. Well, you know, I, I treated myself to the full Red Book, which is a very big thing. Yeah. It's a little difficult to manage reading because it's, it's a serious coffee table book, but the, uh, the illustrations, which he, he did, are just so beautiful. And it is a great, magical book you know, in the tradition of the Voynich Manuscript and some of these other outsider artists, uh, crypto personal Bibles. And I think you're right. He what he he really walked it like he talked it Mm -hmm. and was a great soul searcher, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons when he he brought to his clinical practice such depth, you know,
0: I think so, too. I think so, too. So let's start off this way with maybe the most pedestrian question we can ask, but I think that you'd have an interesting take on it. What do you make of all the UFO stuff that's in the news right now? Is it a distraction? Is it, um, is it being released now because the government thinks that it could have almost no impact whatsoever? Because I'll tell you this, I've seen the reports that have come out and the response from people after you know the year of covid um, has been yeah you know we we kind of have a lot of stuff going on right now um we don't we, we we don't really need to know about this right now so the the response has been uh surprisingly underwhelming in my neck of the woods
1: interesting Inter- well i i think i would say the same and you know i i live in what I think you'd have to call is, is the UFO state. We have uh, something called the extraterrestrial highway that runs past Area 51. Uh, but in answer to your question, if, if we put some kind of anthropology, psychology frame on the larger topic of, of the UFO mythology, um, it seems to me that, that we have two very major camps. One is the extraterrestrial hypothesis that, and, you know, it's literally, uh, yes, there are uh, creatures from an, uh, another galaxy or another dimension. They are somehow in our atmosphere. They're using technology that we don't fully understand. They may or may not be in collusion with various military uh, forces and national bodies. Um so it's really taking the, the close encounters thing very seriously and very literally. Um, Jung looked at what's called the psychosocial uh, explanation, and I think that relates back to our earlier discussions about the cargo cult religions in Melanesia, where I went to uh, you know to research and study, and the idea of a kind of syncretic uh, folk religious, at least, um, way of managing change, way of dealing with the unfamiliar, the way of trying to either romanticize or to put uh, a dark face on on problems, but at least a dark face that, that um, can be understood. Mm-hmm. You know, the the attitudes about uh, the whole UFO thing really cover a huge spectrum. From very friendly um, rescuers and saviors uh, or scientific investigators to, you know, evil colonists uh, bent on our eventual destruction. So we're, we're seeing in the phenomenon without question an allegory, an allegorical spectrum of the human reaction to human culture. There's no question about Mm -hmm. that. There may be something else going on. Um, But I think why we're seeing some more things now, I I thought it was interesting what you said about the government being able to talk about this uh, because there's so much other stuff going on. I mean, we've got a huge border crisis with Mexico. We've got trouble flaming up again in the Middle East we've got possibly the first round of inflation for you know quite some time and we've just coming out of a pandemic um, with you know calls to defund the police and rising gun violence and on and on and on so it it, it could be um, and I think it's certain there's certainly an element of this a, a distraction uh, technique um, it's a way of, of just I don't you know, I think yeah. just taking the heat off yeah. the headlines for a little bit. Mm-hmm.
0: The conspiracy theory circles that I run in, uh, it's been sort of funny to watch because they've been beating the drum about the government's hiding something about extraterrestrials. Uh, you know, they sort of champion all of these, um, these whistleblowers and people who say that they've seen the craft and people who've worked in Area 51. Um, and then as soon as the government says, yeah, you know what? There are UFOs. They turn on their heel and they say, "Nope, they're they're lying." And it's, it is sort of interesting. Right. <laughs> it it's sort of interesting to think of the conspiracy theorist as having such a mindset that aliens are only real and UFOs are only real in so far as the government claims that they are not. And as soon as that switch gets flipped, we go right back to, "Oh, well, that that couldn't possibly be real because why would they why would they tell us?" What do you think is going on with that? Is that something about the conspiracy theorists? Are they just contrarians?
1: Well, I think that's in the nature of, of you know, I think that's one of the things that attracts people to that, that kind of mindset. It, it it's, uh, it's a rugged individualist in the great American tradition of, uh, you know, sort of the Missouri, you know, show me state kind of thing. I'll believe it when I see it. And, and taking back some sort of sovereignty from the media and from politicians. Uh, but what I find you know, interesting is the, the, um, the practice of culture tracking. That's a phrase that's used in and around uh, the UFO uh, culture studies. And it, it looks back at, at the history of, of people seeing UFOs, uh, going back to the mysterious airships of uh, the 1890s and earlier, much earlier, uh, well, I mean, we have it in the Bible. We have Ezekiel's, you know, flying chariot. We've, you know, this is not really a new idea. It, it seems to me that with the Cold War, uh, the, the emphasis really shifted to um, a question of real suspicion about the nature of the government. Um, and and how much we know about what the government's doing. And I think 1947, which is also the year of the Roswell incident, is a crucial uh, turning point, because that was the year that uh, Harry Truman, and let's not forget what a weird, you know, the Harry S, you know, the S doesn't stand for anything. He just thought it sounded good. He's one of the few judges who was never a lawyer Uh, and one of his claims to fame before becoming a senator was being a a failed men's store owner. Um, And I think it's odd that he is the person we think, you know, in the words of William Burroughs, who gave that order in terms of of the two uh, atomic bombs dropped on Japan, a very significant figure. Well, in 1947, off his own bat, with, with not much um, congressional scrutiny, uh, he signed into action uh, a resurgence of funding for what Eisenhower would later call the military-industrial complex that had <coughs> had complete, the budget had completely dropped out, completely dropped out after 1945. And suddenly you know, that was having big economic impact. So it's not surprising that he took that action. But that was his economic stimulus idea. And suddenly in 1947, things start to get strange again. Um, I, I, you know, I know people, older people in the Bay Area who had seen, you know, some of the influx of the great European geniuses around the Manhattan Project with the Lawrence Livermore Lab and, you know, Cal Berkeley. And, you know, there were a few centers around the country, University of Chicago, and, of course, the test sites in in New Mexico and Nevada. But suddenly there was something else going on, you know, and it it, it was big-time money. Um, It... I mean, I've always had issues with people in the Bay Area who think of it as kind of the free speech, liberal capital of America, because honestly, a lot of the bankrolling was done by uh, the military industrial complex.
0: Right, right. And I think of two other things that happened in 1947 that are very important. Uh, One of them was the founding of the Central Intelligence Agency, And exactly. And second, it was Philip K. Dick's pink laser beam experience happened in 1947. Uh, So those are all sort of uh, wrapped up in that very strange year. Sorry to interject that. I just wanted to
1: to get that. No, I think those are really, really relevant. And I don't, don't, it's very hard to think of, of that as just, you know, pure innocent coincidence, you know, to use the Jungian idea of synchronicity. There's something. Something going on there. Yeah. Uh, and I, so maybe we're the starting point with uh, a really massive uh, cultural mythology, such as the UFO scene. It is a collective attempt to make sense of a problem that isn't clearly defined mm. at all. And that's the nature of the problem. Mm.
0: And so in modern context, then the government copying to the fact that UFOs have been seen and then those reports not being believed speaks to a current era of paranoia, of a complete lack of trust in traditional news media, perhaps Um, people breaking off into, as Robert Anton Wilson would call them, different reality tunnels and sort of believing or not believing a, th- a thing based on who's saying it. So now it becomes this kind of thing of, um, you know, it's all out in the open. The information is there, sort of mimicking how the Internet itself works. The information is out there, and now we get to build our own reality from the ground up.
1: Right. <clears throat> well, I think there are a couple of ways to look at this. Um mm-hmm. One of, uh, you know, we can pick out a few other mythologies that have maybe disappeared, that haven't has had as much endurance as, as the UFO phenomenon. I mean, I can remember a time, and I actually knew a friend who claimed this, you know, the recovered memory syndrome yes, yes. Of, of having been abducted. So we've got the abduction story, which falls into the narrative form idea of the captivity narrative. You know, and and that goes way back in time. Um, That's a very interesting literary sort of genre and and, and folkloric genre. But, you know, the satanic cult abduction thing was really, really hot for a while, especially in in California. Um, And, I mean, okay, well, there was the Church of Satan and Anton LaVey. You probably have seen, you know, pictures of him, you know. Uh, I mean, he was a really old time carnival guy who, who thought, well, the church of Satan sounds like a good, Mm -hmm. you know, scheme. And I'm not saying there aren't Satanists and I'm not making any judgment about that at all. Um, the one serious Satanist that, or that I knew about was extremely intelligent and was looking at it from a real, uh, history of the occult and, and also, uh, you know, I think a pretty solid, um, if you can have a solid metaphysical grounding, if that isn't too strange for people, uh, I think he did. Mm-hmm. But there were an awful lot of, of, of pop psych stories um, that emerged about these abduction experiences. And I remember reading in, in the San Francisco Chronicle, you know, in San Francisco, home to a lot of strange stuff. But the the point of it was, there were so many cults talked about, it just wouldn't have been possible, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it wouldn't it wouldn't have been possible for these organizations, these groups, these weird tribes of people to to really uh, exist at all in in such numbers, um, and let alone you know kind of continue day to day life, and. I don't know when exactly that began to fade out, but I think it was kind of in in the late '80s. Um, but you just don't hear about that anymore,
0: do you? I mean, no, well, okay, that the Satanist um, the Satanist you know meme or, or or thought is coming back around now in the form of QAnon, which holds that the government and Wall Street bankers and international globalist cabals are made up pretty much exclusively of satanic pedophiles um, who kind of commit uh, these sort of awful ritualistic acts in a form of mutual blackmail to keep the whole system running. Basically, the idea is that that they're forced to partake in rituals with, you know, pedophilia and, you know, uh, child murder um, and things like that because it's the worst possible thing that you could do. And so it's mutually assured destruction if it ever gets out. And that has led to a resurgence in the popularity of books such as Program to Kill, which I read recently by David McGowan, who was one of the uh, editors of Disinfo. You remember that website?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, I, I certainly he, do.
0: He wrote a book called called Program to Kill, which had a very interesting thesis behind it. Number one, it was that the false memory, the alleged false memories of satanic ritual abuse in some of these orphanages uh, were, weren't false memories at all. Um, that there really were these kind of networks of satanist groups that were abusing children, and that in a lot of cases, serial killers, um, I believe McGowan says almost every serial killer in um, American history was in fact a product of an alliance between pedophilic cabals and the CIA's MKUltra program so you know it's it's a it's a complex uh, McGowan to his credit in the book does a lot of really great research using primary sources places like the New York Times the LA Times to kind of do some deep digging into this but you know that kind of stuff has has kind of resurfaced a lot of um, a lot of conspiracy theory has resurfaced right around the time of uh, 2016 for whatever reason, that might be. I started seeing this stuff mm. pop back up again, and it's always been something that has been very interesting to me. I've been a big fan of the you know, the Illuminatus trilogy and the work of Thomas Pynchon. I've always uh, had a, a soft spot for conspiracy-minded thinkers, mostly because my dad is a big-time conspiracy theory guy. My dad is a big Alex Jones fan, um, and for as long as we've had cell phones— I have received text messages from my father about all this kind of stuff, UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, monsters. Um, he's, he's just kind of poured this stuff into my brain since I was a child. So it's it's kind of how, how my, my head actually works. But I do think that it became uh, sort of more mainstream once uh, 2016 happened, and I do think that that has a lot to do with the sense of unreality that people felt uh, regarding the, the the American election, right? Because what we're talking about primarily is an um, all an American phenomenon. That there are conspiracy theorists, obviously, in other countries, but for the moment, I think we're talking exclusively about America. So I was wondering if you also noticed this uptick recently, or have your circles been mostly quiet regarding conspiracy?
1: Well, I wouldn't say quiet, and I'm certainly uh, deeply interested and in, 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 in fascinated. I mean, I, I've, I've always been I, there's some uh, conspiracies I, I are more dear to my heart than others, but I, I know I think that the whole uh, MK Ultra Manchurian candidate thing, I got very excited about that. Um, and now I, I, I'm fascinated by folk beliefs and, and how they spread. Uh, I'm, I've always been interested in the anthropology of the rumor, uh, and the urban legend, uh, and all of these things I think swirl around in a collective unconscious stew. And it's a question of what bubbles up to the surface at at any given moment. I, I will say that, that, um, from a media studies point of view, I think that the, uh, and 2016 is a fine uh, date for that. I, I think it actually goes back further. Um, and and we've talked about the you know the, the the emergence of CNN when that started. We've talked about when Fox News uh, launched. It really is true that um, the media credibility has just impressively declined. I, I have some good media analytics that I think suggest that is not uh, people's intuition or uh, it, it's not a partisan view. It's a general truth. But even if you said, okay, uh, I mean, if we looked at it the way Jung would and said, look, let's not uh, try to argue whether or not the the quality and the objectivity of the mainstream media has steeply declined. It's nonetheless a perception in, in culture. And so where then do you get your news? You know Where do you get the any kind of objective basis to make any kind of decisions? And I think that it's going through these uh, smaller networks, that social media has made possible. Sometimes those become bubble chambers or echo chambers. Um, but for many people, I think they're, they've been the only access to something they feel they have any kind of control over at all. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I think so too. And that really started, yeah, I guess you could go back to our talk about the media and when all, the, and then especially with the, in, the rise of the internet that has made people's ways of thinking splinter off in so many different ways. Um, I'm reminded of a term that has also become very popular in the common lexicon now, which is gaslighting. Uh, Mm -hmm. and gaslighting was initially used to talk about in a one-to-one relationship, um, scenario where somebody acts, uh, in a cruel way to another person And then when they are confronted about it, they essentially tell them, you know, you're crazy, you're making things up, etc." And it has been used recently to describe how people feel about watching the news. Um, There are lots of little fact checkers on social media now. I don't know if you've gotten dinged by any of the fact checkers recently, but I, I certainly do. And you can get dinged for pretty funny stuff, too. People have found ways to play with this um, and, you know, find little technicalities in in what will get something fact check, just to kind of show the absurdity of the whole process. But you basically have a huge apparatus, a governmental apparatus that combines with Silicon Valley tech folks um, to try to control a narrative. And what ends up happening is a form of mass gaslighting where people are watching things unfold in real time on their computers because everybody has a video camera in their pocket. And then our ministry of information, for lack of a better term for it, has to come out and say, no, no, that's not what happened at all. You didn't see that. You saw, you saw something else. Right. (laughs) And so it's, it's created this conspiracy mindset where you know, if you want people to uh, believe in the truth of what it is that you're saying, you should probably tell them the truth, even if it makes you look bad. But one of the side effects of telling people to their face that something that they just watched with their own eyes didn't really happen is that it's going to cause a lot of people to reevaluate some stuff that they thought was nonsense five, six, seven years ago. And and then you're going to end up with people who have a you know, a more a, a more rich mythological world. Let's put it that way, right?
1: Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Here's here's the question for to try to, to uh, get a little more frame on this. Let's just take the point of view. Um, Area fifty one. I've I've been up there to visit several times. Um, I would love to believe that there are aliens uh, working underground and that something amazing is happening. My honest belief is that what has always been going on there is the human testing of extremely advanced uh, aircraft at any given point in history. Um, and now I know there's a lot of drone stuff. Mm-hmm. And I th- my... My suspicion is that the mythology surrounding Area 51 is a more wondrous and uh, sinister, but but also fun way of processing something very mundane and uh, kind of discouraging that we're that we've got these you know that we need that kind of military technology that we don't understand it. Um, I did see uh, one of the aircraft in civilian space here, because uh, well, one of my students said there was a movement on with the Air Force to get some of the young pilots flying in civilian space because they spend too much time in completely protected, you know, private secret space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think you can make a very strong case, at least in regard to Area Fifty One, that. We have tried to, as a culture, uh, put on a kind of magical uh, veneer over something that is really very pedestrian, uh, commercial, and kind of tragic, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in, in the sense of destructive machines. So that's there. But how do we think of Bigfoot? Yeah. I mean, if you can see the mechanisms <laughs> yeah. and, and, the, and the cultural payoff regarding the Area 51 mythology, supposing I'm at all right there, um, if we look at it, and I think Bigfoot's a great uh, folk uh, motif to embrace, uh, what's going on with that?
0: The interesting thing about Bigfoot is its prominence throughout cultures across the entire world, right? Aliens are too, although I'm not as well versed in those, but you hear about, you know, the Yeti or the Sasquatch or the Abominable Snowman everywhere from Tibet to, you know, British Columbia. It's just sort of all over the place. People have reported seeing these ape-like creatures. Usually in snowy, forested areas, I remember there's a book called The Long Walk, which was written by a Polish escapee from a Russian gulag that I, I read to research my uh, my first novel, which was about escapees from a Russian gulag. And though it's not really the point of the book, there is an anecdote in there about the time him and his fellow escapees see a Bigfoot in the mountains while they're in uh, I believe they're going over the mountains in Nepal Um, so you have uh, in America you have a long and proud tradition of Bigfoot hunters and it's this there's this incredible tension between the amount of encounter reports that exist from people and the almost complete lack of any physical evidence that these things exist Right now If you want to talk about what's going on uh, in a cultural, mythological sense, I think that, and I'd have to do more research to, uh, to confirm this, but I think that what you see with Bigfoot is this kind of return to nature as human beings get further and further away from it, right? So I think that you could almost look at the Sasquatch or Bigfoot as... A, as a, as a proto-human being who exists completely free from the trappings of modernity, uh, can't be photographed, can't be captured, and, you know, and gets to live out <coughs> in the woods eating berries and frolicking about with other Sasquatches, I guess, when they're not being seen. But there's definitely something to, number one, the return to nature Number two, the inability to be photographed, the inability to take place, uh, to take part in any of this new form of technology that we have, and uh, the fact that it leaves sort of no trace at all, right? Uh, I think those are those are all maybe bubblings up from from the subconscious. What do you what do you think about that?
1: I I think that's certainly on track. I I still have some questions though mm-hmm. because. Um, I think one way to possibly gloss uh what you've just said is, is a kind of um profound nostalgia mm-hmm. for an a more innocent phase of of life and and possible human evolution mm-hmm. um, or certainly I mean it, it's it's the it's the wild man of the mountains uh it's it's that mythology which goes way back in time it's uh, it's another species and yet it's kind of related um, but I just think it's very strange how what shape it's finally taken because you never at least I, I mean maybe maybe uh, this isn't true um, but I've, I've heard very little about uh, the missing link idea mm-hmm. which would place you know Bigfoot solidly within, you know the 19th century scientific evolution frame, and I would I would think that. Um, I think it's also interesting that we're pointedly not talking about, uh, say, Neanderthals or Cro-Magnon uh, mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. Um, and there has been you know interest in in Neanderthals of late. You, you you know you often see mm-hmm. new takes on this. We're finding new archaeological evidence, but I, I think what. Uh, the problem uh, is that there really is evidence, mm-hmm. whereas Bigfoot offers a presence uh, with no evidence at all, and is right. kind of a, is a pop culture creation. Uh, you know, Robert Anton Wilson said, is that a real unicorn you're thinking of?" Um, <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I like and, that too. You know, I mean, everybody knows what Bigfoot looks like. That's true. Um, and yet, you know, so maybe there, what's happening is a kind of collective, creative act. Um, as far as I know, and most of the time when I think about the Bigfoot mythology. Um, I think it's pretty positive and, and kind of cheerful. Um, Me too. I, I don't hear about Bigfoot attacks. Do you? I
0: used to read about those in books that I would check out from the library when I was a kid, but I haven't heard anything like that in a very long time. Bigfoot attacks are typically accompanied by a very offensive odor, a sense of disorientation. Um and, and, you know, of course, heavy dose of fear, right? Um, and there are often reports of the Bigfoot uh, not just being kind of blurry on camera, but appearing blurry when people see them, as a matter of fact. So there's, there is a lot of overlap, and, uh, and I actually have an article pulled up here that I can, I can get to whenever we want to. There is beginning to be more and more of an overlap between Bigfoot and the Fae, And actually extraterrestrials as well, right? But all that is to say, to answer your initial question, no, I've never heard of of Bigfoot killing anybody, um, which you would think would happen, right? I mean, if you encounter a nine-foot ape in the woods, you'd think somebody would get their head taken off eventually.
1: Well, I would think that the, the, the mythology being as flexible as it is, that there would at least run into some sort of scary, darker sort of zone. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have, you know, leprechauns. They can be, you know, cheerful and, and magically delicious, or they can also be really sinister uh-huh. and creepy. Yep. Um, most of the... You know, we have good witches and bad witches, Uh I, I think the way that the the human uh, collective unconscious works is that it's, it's got rooms, it's got dungeons and, and, and shadowy you know jungles and, and quicksand and it's got mountains of bright light um, so I'm a little surprised we haven't had more of, of the terror of Bigfoot. Um,
0: there's, it, there's, in it, fact, just as a quick aside, there is an entire genre right now, as you're well aware, of Bigfoot romance novels. Yes. So take from that what you will.
1: <laughs> oh, dear. That, um, you know, my brief little glimpse into that world just... I, I, I wasn't quite sure what to think. You know, it was...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. I mean, it could be really exciting, but uh, <laughs> I, it just, you know, ends up being kind of ludicrous. But there, I think that you've got a very, very clear uh, way of understanding it. I, I think it's a way of seeing the animal in humans, you know, and the fact that we have very mixed feelings about uh about sort of civilization you know it, it, sometimes it seems great but it also seems sterile we don't think it's entirely real and we think that we're all potentially capable of reverting to some kind of animal animalistic uh, behavior perhaps even savagery mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't that doesn't seem that isn't the vibe I get from Bigfoot I I have a feeling if I were walking around Washington or Oregon, and I have, I've gone, I've gone looking for Bigfoot. I, I think I would, you know, be really, um, well, I, I don't think my first instinct would be to run, you know, I really think I'd be, I'd be trying to get a photograph. I'd be, um, I don't know if I would be terrified. Mm-hmm. And I think I can tell you, you know, if I saw any kind of bear, um, I would I would be thinking oh I don't know if I want to get any closer to that bear right, um, right. so it seems like a very special category of mythology can we think of anything else that's that's um, that's like that that is kind of uh, if not universal you know it pops up around the globe in a few places um, as
0: far as universal. Um universal myths like that um that is a very very good question um there are stories uh well i guess witches in the woods sure um what else would be a kind of ghosts ghosts would be one um everybody has their almost every culture i think has some sort of ghost story um Yeah, no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can think of one. Well,
1: see, ghost stories um, really do run, you know, quite the gamut. Uh, But I I think that's too... um, It's not specific enough for me. Uh, Right, right. I I mean, I think that there could be some really eerie, scary, uh, very moving ghost stories. There could be some really funny ones. Uh, It's been used, you know, as a motif in in many, many different... um, Ways. Do you know the Algernon Blackwood story, The Willows? I don't. Well, uh, he you know he was a really classy uh, horror writer. Um, it's a very very peculiar story because the creatures are 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 the willow trees, and and there these two guys going down uh, the Danube River, and um, it's kind of about. You know, it's an allegory of psychological breakdown between these two travelers. But the sense of the metaphysical evil of this environment, and it isn't any one tree. It's, it's kind of the way I feel about mangrove uh, areas. Mangroves give me the creeps. Um, you know, they're, they're dangerous to be around because they go down underwater you can break a leg in them. You're never sure what's going on. Something's always bubbling up, you know? Well, it's a really good story of botanical terror. Um, I don't know how you would film it. I've, I've often thought of that. Um, but I went back and read it a little while ago, and it was just as moving as the first time Um I read it. So the, so that's a kind of a ghost story that's completely malignant, um, and, and somewhat focused. But I, I think that if we were looking to a comparison point for Bigfoot, uh, well, what about the Loch Ness monster?
0: That was that was one that I was going to say, but I wasn't sure if we had other... Well, I guess nearby where I live in Lake Thunderbird, there's the story of the giant squid that supposedly lives in the lake there. Um, lake monsters have to be a motif that runs across cultures. I'm sure if we did a little research, we would come across that.
1: Oh, yeah. There are a lot of really cool lake monsters. And you and I are going to hunt that, that giant squid we down. Are. That's right. Yeah, that's a documentary film project for us. Uh, I somehow the lake monsters always seem to transcend that word "monster," and I get a pretty good vibe from them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, I I feel good about the Loch Ness monster as whether it's a you know a plesiosaur you know whatever, or whether it's logs that are you know bubbling up mm-hmm. from yeah. below, <laughs> um, whatever the ex- I, I still think. Uh, Nessie is cool. Yeah. Um and I mean when you look at Loch Ness, it's very hard this is another way to think about this. I think it's very hard not to imagine a lake monster down there. You know, it's it's kind of like it's dark, you know, right? What are you thinking? It's like pitch yeah. black.
0: Once you get past the surface, it's something to do with is it, it it's not pit, it's um what makes the lake so black? Do you know?
1: Um, oh, it's, what's the, um, yeah, well, it is, it's peat, yeah, um, and it's very deep, mm-hmm. and it's very cold, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there are, there are, you know, a few factors going on there, but the, the surrounding land, you know, if we use that expression, spirit of place, um, it, I mean, it just looks like there's going to be, uh, a giant you know, monster there In the same way I think That where I live looks like UFO country mm-hmm, You know mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that. I mean I just You know it's obvious Yeah that's such an interesting thing too
0: Because I know that you've probably experienced this When you take a night drive somewhere And you kind of glance out Into the desert on either side of you <clears throat> You can't help but think That there are chupacabras out there and insane you know survival cannibal survivalists and UFOs it's just it feels like this entire tapestry of 40 in life that has to be out there somewhere and it's always done that to me more so than even forests and I think that for some people it might be reversed it probably depends very much on where you were raised and, and how you tend to think about these kind of things but I can't look at the desert. Um, without thinking that it is just full of scary stuff, you
1: know. <laughs> well, you know, I think that that uh, this is getting somewhere interesting because, uh, you know, when you say it, that you don't necessarily feel that way in in forests, like you know, uh, in many parts of America, and I that that triggered a thought about jungles you know Mm -hmm. some really serious jungles like borneo uh or the solomons or new guinea uh i don't have that feeling there either Mm -hmm. i mean i certainly think there's a lot to be scared of there's no question um i mean in parts of africa my god there's definitely i mean you've got any number of things to worry about including some crazy humans um but I think the very fact that, that the reasons for fear are so rationally, you know, uh, defensible, um, maybe that pulls us back and maybe what we need is is a little bit more canvas, blank canvas, not not totally blank, but like the desert, like a lake, mm-hmm. where we can project some of our imagination and have some kind of um, well, not ownership exactly, but, but a kind of investment, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And it makes me... Uh, it all, I, I love going to this area about projecting the imagination out onto space because I'm fascinated by the power of the human mind and I often wonder if... Is it a chicken or an egg thing? Do I think of the empty desert as being full of these kind of creatures because they are and i'm responding to that right or is the desert full of these creatures because i think about it myself and, and other people obviously right does a collective conscious collective unconscious rather projection onto a space such as the desert make those things in some sense real Right. At what point does a does a hallucination become an actual reality for somebody? Right. Like when somebody encounters a UFO in the Nevada desert, are they encountering a buildup of psychic energy, a buildup of projections of UFOs from all those drivers who've been looking out into the into the desert? It's a fascinating question for me. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that.
1: Well, I think it is a fascinating question. I think it's a really deep question about the nature of perception and the imagination and the relationship of individual imagination to the collective phenomenon of that, which is so essential to any idea of of culture. Uh, Well, I I think one way to think about it, and this is very difficult to actually do in practice, but imagine, you know, good old-fashioned Venn diagrams, For a moment is a way of thinking about this Mm -hmm. and you've got one circle that's the individual consciousness this is you out in the desert okay and what your question was is to what extent is is your diagram overlapping with something that's actually there yeah right correct and somehow i think that's an example of where we're framing the question incorrectly okay I think it's very difficult to 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 find another way, but let me let me give you an example that I uh, Robert Irwin is, is an artist I, I very much admire. We've I think spoken a little bit about him, and in Lawrence Weschler's uh, biography of of Irwin's art practice, uh, he talks about Irwin breaking through the barrier of well, is art inherent in the object or is it in the viewer Mm -hmm. and and breaking down that binary um, so that art is what happens to the viewer it's a participatory verb it's not an experience that's sitting in one venn diagram or another and i think that's kind of on track that somehow we're talking about a dynamic process where there is a mixture of, of creation and reception. Hmm. You know,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would definitely agree with that, and I think that it's. Oh man, I would definitely I would have to think about this a lot more because it's one of the most fascinating subjects I think uh, in existence. Period. Um,
1: so Me too.
0: At this point. I think we're going to try something a little new for this episode. Chris and I have been doing a lot of talking about the ways that we would like for the show to progress from here on out, and of course we still have the uh, the Jungian UFOs to get to on this episode, but we have decided that we are going to begin a Patreon And we want to do that for several different reasons. Uh, We would really like to start creating uh, more of a community around this show. And we also started to notice that our episodes, which we try to keep at about an hour, we usually go about 10 or 15 over, we realized that we had a lot more to talk about every time we hop on the phone to have these, these chats. So real quick, we wanted to break down how these episodes are going to work. So, Chris, who's a much more articulate uh, person than I am, I'm going to turn the the floor over to him and kind of talk about his thoughts with regard to this move that we're making and 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 why we're why we're making it. So, take it away, Mr. Sacknesum.
1: Okay. Well, there are several reasons, and we've been talking about this for a while, and we've also gotten a lot of of inspiration from listeners. Uh, there, there is a point where having some kind of investment on the part of a listenership, any kind of audience, uh, really is important. Um, we've now done uh, over forty, well, forty shows. Uh, we've, we've established a track record of, of subject areas. We've got a lot more um, directions to expand into. There are several areas that we felt really need more exploration. You know, we need to dive deeper, and, and people have asked us about that. Uh, we've, we've noticed that ourselves and have built up these notebooks of, of, of other thoughts to follow up on. So we want really to validate the show in, in commercial terms. We think that will uh, add a level of authenticity to it. Um, we're going to keep the format um, of, of a first hour-long segment, That will be available and open to everyone, but we may open up some doors then that uh, we take a different stance uh, with. We're going to keep to our areas of interest of a new anthropology, um, how individual psychology relates to collective cultural psychology. The idea of reenchantment how we can find some new sense of wonder in an increasingly secular, commercialized, technological world, how we can find our way to true science, because uh, there's a lot of very interesting scientific people working. There's also a lot of institutional, tired, uh, scientist-scientism, you know, that's become uh well it's become a kind of industrial complex and I think a lot of people have lost faith in that and we need to sort of look in some directions. We've got a range of of heroes and figures that that we are inspired by that we want to share. We certainly have more books to recommend and talk about and we're also uh going to be launching some some relatively formal courses which uh I think will be very exciting they'll be reasonably priced but they really will have that enriched lifetime learning uh edge to them i've run several of these and i'm really looking forward to it david and i have talked about how we're going to get that platform in place so there's really an exciting new era opening up where we want to build on the strengths that we've established reward the people who have been following us the whole time And open some new doors that will be exciting for them and continuously exciting for us. Perfectly said.
0: Perfectly said. So you may have answered this question, but I've been wanting to put this to you, and it's a very broad question, so feel free to take this however you want. But something that uh, I've never asked on the show before, but I've been curious about, and I'm sure listeners are curious about as well, you have figures uh, throughout time, big thinkers, people who, who we admire. Terrence McKenna is somebody who comes to mind. And when they're done with their life's work, uh, it's very broad and, and very rich and deep. But you can usually kind of boil it down to one sort of goal or thing that they were attempting to achieve with their life, right? So using the McKenna example, I would say that his goal was to introduce uh, entheogens to the wider populace as as a kind of um, mechanism for for mind expansion and as a way to sort of understand the world in the way that it works. Now, I want to put that exact same question to you. You are a writer, you're an, a multimedia artist, you're an adventurer and now you're a podcaster. What do you see as your, holistic, artistic, and intellectual goal with all of these various life projects?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Well, um, I'll tell you. Uh, I think I can answer that. Uh, I think I can answer that simply, but I think it would it will obviously take a lot more uh, enriching and detailing to, to really flesh out. Um, but people like Baudelaire and Heraclitus have said in different forms that uh, genius and imagination uh, and creativity are childhood regained at will. Uh, I think what I would like to do is to be able to, to gain an aerial view of my cultural cargo at any given point. Hmm. Um, I felt like I had some moments of that in the past. Uh, We talked a little bit about that with the Melanesian experience. I, I would like to have that as a kind of yogic discipline that I could rise above the culture that I carry and see it whole and from a kind of outside point of view.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. That's a great answer. Well, I think that we have outlined here what our plan is. Now, again, if you want to just listen to the show, that's fine. The first hour will always be available for free. We're going to cut it in such a way that there will be a bit missing. But Chris and I do have a lot to talk about on these episodes. And we also wanted to use the paywall as a way to Maybe talk about some things that we want to put behind a paywall, right? So there, there are some things that I think
1: <laughs> yes. that,
0: that that might be uh, some listeners might not want to engage in, right? Some more difficult ideas that uh, we're you know we're sort of living in a in a time where you don't want to be too loose with your speech. It feels really bad to have to to say that. But unfortunately, it's very true. Um, I think that both of us, in our own way, have experienced the kind of full wrath of uh, hegemonic thought. Right when when we've sort of yep. stepped out of bounds and and said some things that uh, in in my uh, mind were relatively innocent, but that were not taken as such. And so I think that by putting things uh, behind a paywall, that is also an agreement between ourselves and the listener that we're going to get into slightly more controversial territory. Uh that I th- I think there are things that should be uh behind closed doors, right? I think that there are some things that you shouldn't necessarily confront people with unless they bought the ticket, you know? I don't think that just pressing we'll pressing play on a podcast is not necessarily permission for us to uh Uh, sort of go wild with with some of these things. So there's the the element of wanting to talk about more things. There's the element of wanting to talk about uh, controversial things. There's the element of wanting to build a community both through the Patreon and through the classes. And Chris has told me about some of the classes that he has planned and I would definitely take them. So I'm interested in that as well. Um, The book club is going to be another element of it that I think is going to be a lot of fun. We have... uh, A few books chosen each, but I believe the idea that we have is for that to be a monthly book club with four meetings on Zoom where we will answer questions that people might have and also give people the opportunity to jump in and talk about their experiences with some of these uh, really great books that I almost guarantee you uh, you haven't read and you haven't, haven't heard of. So with that, we are going to take a quick break. And then we're going to come back. We're going to talk about Jung. We're going to talk about UFOs. And uh, I might start off where we left off with this very uh, interesting segue, seeing as how we talked about Bigfoot earlier, and I mentioned this earlier, about the current link between Bigfoot and the UFO phenomenon and portals.
1: I like the sound of that.
0: All right, cool. So we'll be right back, and uh, we will I guess we'll talk to you then. Excellent. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Patreon-exclusive half of No Country. This is very exciting, Chris. We're we're doing it.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a new era. Uh, We've got a lot of of things to celebrate. You've got a, a new baby. I'm finishing a major project. Summer's coming on. We're looking at a new uncertain era. Uh, mm-hmm. around the world, but certainly in America. I can feel it very much in my neighborhood. So, yeah, it's time to, uh, to add something new to the mix.
0: I agree. I agree. So thank you to everybody who subscribed to the Patreon. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope to see a lot of our, our fans come along with this. So if you're listening, thanks. To start off this episode, we're going to piggyback off of what Chris and I just finished up talking about which is Bigfoot and extraterrestrials. So I found this article on masslive.com. It's from, I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly, Worcester in England. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, It's spelled a bit different than that, but I think I remember it being pronounced that way, and it is titled, Is Bigfoot an Extraterrestrial Visitor? Some researchers think so. Is it possible the creature known as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, or by a number of different names all over the world, is an interdimensional traveler. That's a theory now in play with both Bigfoot and UFO researchers, and one that played heavily into discussions at this weekend's Greater New England UFO, blah, 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 blah. So basically, the thrust of this article is that recent sightings of Bigfoot have been accompanied by visions of floating gold orbs in the air. And I remember back on the kind of Unsolved Mystery days, uh, you know, staying up late to watch these programs, Golden floating orbs were a big phenomena when video cameras started to become ubiquitous in suburban America. They started catching these almost fae-like creatures floating through the air. So apparently, this particular theory dates back to 1973, but now it's gaining a bit more traction. And long story short, because it is quite a long article, it's believed that the reason why we never find animal remains from Bigfoot attacks or Bigfoot remains themselves, is because Bigfoot is actually an interdimensional entity that is stepping through portals uh, into our in and out of our dimension. Now, why Bigfoot is doing that? We don't know. Uh, Are we simply perceiving this thing as Bigfoot that's actually some sort of creature that we don't have an ability to uh, really understand with our, our five, six senses? Um, but I thought that that was an interesting link between the two things that we were talking about, right? These kind of holistic theories that are beginning to develop around around a complete lack of evidence, right? It's kind of like, if, well, if we don't know why we can't find any remains of this kind of stuff, perhaps it's portals, right? But I wonder how those two myths, from a mythological perspective, right, something a bit more sinister like aliens that abduct people, and Bigfoot, which, as we mentioned in our free episode, represents some sort of returning back to nature. Uh, it's interesting that those two myths are involved in a kind of car crash right now, right? The, the sort of modern right. scary technology uh, actually, in its own way, kind of abducting the uh, the the primitive uh, return to nature type man. That's how I see it, at least. Right? I see it as one myth eating the other.
1: I think that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, one of the things that, that we can definitely say that defines mythology is, is the ability to morph and to adapt over time and to take on other motifs. I mean, if you look at the great um, folkloric indices of, of you know, story motifs from folktales and fairy tales, you see how much overlap there is you know, there's there's always at least two or three elements going on, you know, animals turning into people, people turning into animals, uh, treasure, magic names. I mean, it's never just one uh, simple motif stream. They usually evolve over time by taking on board other story ideas. If, if you if you were to look at them in terms of stories. Um, so I'm I'm not at all surprised that we're seeing uh, a kind of evolution in in the Bigfoot uh, arena because I think that that idea of uh, a nostalgia for nature, a lost wilderness, I mean, kind of the the personification in a way of of a lost wilderness, that that seems a little naive and and in the past to me. Um, I, I I see there's there's more going on with that, and I think it's inevitable to uh, to get with the the space age. And now, I mean, the interdimensional thing is is just a fabulous belief system because it really solves so many difficult problems. It does, you know? yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, faster than the speed of light, the mechanics of 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 you know, massive travel across galaxies. Um, it could be much simpler, you know, and it really opens up some very, very interesting doors imaginatively. And, and who's to say that that, that isn't um, an answer? One of the exercises that I do with my students, and I really, I mean, I do it in a serious sort of way. We, do, we don't start off a, a class doing this. We, we build some rapport first. But we really think of ourselves as, as being in the writer's room uh, of a TV mm-hmm. show. And we really brainstorm out what would something truly alien be? How mm-hmm. would that work? And one of the motifs which has emerged, which I think is very interesting, uh, and it's come up several times. It's vague, but, but you know, that's the nature. It's It's complicated. But... The idea is that we would be looking at some kind of uh, entity that is both collective and individual Mm -hmm. simultaneously. Um, Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be like a species. It wouldn't be a multiplicity of creatures of a certain kind or different kinds. Um, And it wouldn't be an entirely unified uh, figure, you know, like a divinity or you know, one one creature. It's it yeah. would be some dynamic tension between those two, and yeah. I, I really love that idea. As vague as it is, I think I think there's something in that.
0: I don't think it's vague at all. I think we have something very similar to that on Earth right now, and it is called the mushroom. Right, uh, Terence McKenna was famous for saying that the aliens have already arrived. And that they are psychedelic mushrooms, and that does seem to me to be a sort of individuated intelligence that can be picked and and experienced individually. But you know, the largest living structure in the world, I believe it's in England and it's underground, is a uh, is a mycelial structure, right? A mushroom structure that kind of spreads out, and it is kind of what you're talking about, right? It's a it's a multiplicity of, of things, but also an individual at the same time. Am I off base with it? Am I missing something here? Or is no,
1: that- no, that that's exactly what we're talking about. And I, and I think there's an interesting and, and very uh, fertile suggestion here um, is that well, first of all, I think Terence McKenna had a lot of really fascinating things to say, and he was far from alone. I think Leary, I think John Lilly, I think Robert Anton Wilson. I think there was a whole uh, movement in, in the 60s and 70s where a kind of psychedelic humanism emerged across several science fields, certainly psychology, and, and some of the more interesting uh, practices in the arts. Where we were really thinking about an, an alternative kind of being in 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 the universe, um, and I th- I think that's got to be worth pursuing again, because maybe within that, at minimum, it's another way of thinking about humanity. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. this is one of our big problems. Are, are are we really individuals? Or, or should we be more correctly thought of as a kind of collective entity? Um, because when you think about the idea of what culture is, you know, no one stands alone, no one stands independent of, of culture. We've had a few incidents maybe of like feral children, uh, but not very many of them. And, and that's worth pursuing as a, as, a, as a topic in another show. Basically, culture appears to be, to me at any point, right, a kind of inhabiting force.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, it, yeah. It, it seems to inhabit us.
0: Right, right. I like that a lot, um, especially when you think about th- things like technology. Um, in the modern way of conceiving of myth, instead of having gods, we have aspects of culture. We have different cultures. And this is the kind of thinking that I love getting into that sort of reverses everything. Common knowledge would say that a group of people together develop a thing called culture. And that's true to an extent. But what I'm hearing you saying is that, the, uh, or what I think you are saying, is that these are things that exist maybe first, and then develop the people within them. Is that, is that what you're saying?
1: That's exactly what I'm saying. And it. a lot of people I know reject that out of hand because they only hear uh, a metaphysical uh, theory and they have a problem with the idea of metaphysics uh, full stop. Which yeah, I, I reject that latter point completely. I think there are many aspects of what might be called a metaphysical worldview that we have no no trouble dealing with whatsoever. And, mm-hmm. and if you break that word down, it, it isn't as mysterious and occult sounding as I think some people fear it to be. Um, but if you look, if you think about the idea of of that one of the core. Uh, human inventions from, from these people's point of view, if they're going to say we invented culture, the symbol would be one of the, the most crucial examples, maybe the beginning of it all, maybe the, the, the one ring to rule them all, the master idea that makes all ideas possible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Think about if I have a symbol that I want you to understand and value in the same way that I do. Let's go back, you know, 10,000, 25,000, 100,000 years. What's my mechanism to do that? How, How do I get you to be in my same mindset with, say, you know, a creature I've drawn on a wall? I I just don't see the mechanism.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say something along the lines of um, uh, introducing some sort of uh, uh, ritual that imprints a kind of significance to it, but I see exactly what you're saying here, which is that you can draw something, um, a a kind of symbol, like uh, it could be something as simple as, you know, the McDonald's arches or the Nike swoosh, right? And one way of thinking about it would be that because of advertising and the ubiquity of that symbol, it begins to mean something. But what you're saying is that, no, the symbols mean something first and people take that on. It's the symbol that made Nike, the company that it is not the other way around.
1: Exactly right. And
0: I, and I think that you could look at that even with written language. You know, I had a dream last night. It's really funny about this, but I had a dream that we invented uh, the letters that we use by looking at the lines on people's hands, and uh, sort of deciding what the symbols would be based on that, it was a. You were in the dream, as a matter of fact. This is so funny. I walked into a kind of. Uh, okay, what's you know that building that's in Blade Runner uh, that's been used in a lot of Hollywood films. Uh, it's got that kind of great iron. Yeah, architecture. yeah,
1: it's um, it's a great old Los Angeles building. It was used. Yeah. It's been used in many things. It was used in a great Outer Limits episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: so I go in there, and you're at the front desk, and there's this enormous carton of cigarettes there, like just huge. There's like maybe a hundred packs of cigarettes in that, and I say, "Damn, Chris, that's a lot of cigarettes," and you say, "Yeah, it should get me through the day." Um, and then, <laughs> and, and then there's uh, some some uh, lesbian roommates that I had about ten years ago. That was great living in a house full of lesbians. Nothing, nothing could stay broken for very long. They were very crafty people. Um, and, uh, and they sort of showed up and told us that we were going out. And then all together, we began discussing the invention of language and how it actually came from, from hands. And we all showed each other our hands and there were kind of letters in them. That feels, uh, synchronistic with what we're talking about now. I wonder if that dream doesn't have something to do with this conversation
1: that's that's fascinating I, I think it is it's 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 exactly on track and I, I think it, it gets to uh, you know the heart of the mystery of, of language and I think that when we look at language and culture it's it's almost impossible to separate those two but it, it appears to me as if if language had to in a way kind of emerge whole you know mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I it's the signal noise reception transmission paradox. You know, you have to have people tuned in in the same way for anything, not just to make sense, but for the idea of sense to emerge.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you know. <laughs> right. And and when we look at any language in the world, I mean, there's an old saying, you know, there's no such thing as a primitive language. Uh and that really is linguistically true. Uh, the level of complexity, of structural depth, um, really just can't be accounted for, you know?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, especially when you take into account the, the wide varieties of cultures the world over. I think people might not really understand, you know, how different people are in different parts of the world as somebody who spent three years of his life in El Paso on the border of Mexico, I mean, Mexico and the United States are very close geographically, and there's a lot of overlap with our citizenry, um, but it's it's a wildly different two different groups of people, right? So if you take that and you you, you know you take the Inuit, uh, you take a tribe from Papua New Guinea, and you take um, well people who speak English in Oklahoma, right? And all of those disparate places all have an intense level of complexity to their language. It it feels like uh, similar but competing entities uh, that that are all sort of attempting to to speak through different tribes of of humanity. But but no, I completely reject the idea that you know well Inuits developed this language system because they're in the snow and you know in Papua in Papua New Guinea they needed a bunch of words for. Uh, different types of birds or you know different jungles like all that is 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 tr- it's true but insufficient as far as i'm concerned
1: i think that's right i mean it just really looks very thin the, the and the and the more you dig into that idea um the less substantial it becomes and you you've got any number of issues with uh how languages in certain parts of the world moved from purely oral to uh, a written form, there's just so many questions that just don't get resolved there and And then you know, I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of this with with Gus. I mean, this is going to be, I think, one of the most exciting aspects of, of being new parents it's a laboratory for language acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you watch kids and you listen to them and the the level of complexity they are able to process without apparently really any formal uh, education. I mean, they're too young for that. they're They're picking it up entirely on the fly. And you have to think, well, some of that's just got to be already encoded, you know yeah, right it really right. does.
0: Yeah, Gus, Gus has been trying to make noises now. He's a little advanced. I'm going to brag a bit. He's ahead with, <laughs> the, with, the, with the cooing and the goo-goo. Um, he's about a week ahead from the, the movement from screams to that sort of thing. But I, I promise you, this is not just my dad bias creeping in, although I'm sure there's a little bit of that. But when he's cooing and gooing, he's responding to things that I'm saying to him, right? And if I had to guess... Uh, he doesn't have any idea what I'm saying technically, but he gets the gist of those things and he's responding to them down to if I'm frustrated with him and I speak in a certain way, the coos and the goos have a bit of a, you know, well, dad, uh, cool it, man, chill out. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dealing with your bullshit right now, you know? And if I'm happy, the coos and goos have, um, a bit more of a, you know, open kind of feeling to them, you know, and it's not, it's not just mimicry, right? It's not, it's, it's, I feel like I'm having a conversation with an infant who just, who language is trying to to get through, but just needs a little bit more time to, to, to really latch on.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting about, um, one of my uh, anthropology friends who's, who's winding up uh, a really tremendous uh, a career of study, um, almost 10 consecutive years in, in really remote terrain um, on the Indonesian side of, of New Guinea Island. Um, and it was a huge, uh, you know, culture immersion program that has kind of overwhelmed him. And I don't know how he's going to uh, recover, uh, you know, moving back to suburban Sydney. But one of the most interesting things that he writes about is not just the difficulties in learning this very foreign language. And and one of his key uh, objectives has been, you know, to really document the language and, and to keep it alive. Mm-hmm. And I love how he talks about keeping the language alive. It's a very mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> pervasive, intuitive, instinctive treatment of this language as being uh, a kind of entity, you know? And right. if you hear him talk about it, it doesn't sound as mysterious as I'm, I'm making it. It sounds very, very practical. But he talks about, you know, this is a small uh, community of people Everybody knows everybody, and everybody has a relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this the other day. I was in my bank, and the service was slow, and people were bored. And I thought about you know how much time in developed nations we all spend around total strangers, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah, and how that affects our language. And I was listening to this one woman who was talking, chatting to a, a banker. And it was all this kind of, I mean, it was completely polite and courteous. No problem at all. I'm not saying anything, you know. Uh, but it was completely empty. It yeah, was, it was right. empty courtesy. It was, it was just superficial kind of plastic language. You know? And the people that my friend has been living with, they don't have that experience.
0: Right. You know? Right. right.
1: It's entirely different. Their occasions for speaking, this is another phrase he uses, their occasions for speaking are entirely different than ours. Right. You know? And I think that's really interesting. So he, he's, he's embedded in this world where language seems alive in every possible way that we can think of it like an ecosystem you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and it also seems essentially ceremonial right. um, but notice you know the other thing and, and this is we were talking about um, he said notice how when something is ceremonial in the west it means it's kind of not real It's empty. It's just a show. Mm -hmm. Isn't that weird?
0: It is weird. It is weird because I would have the complete opposite view of the thing, where the ceremony is the realest thing that we ever really do. Um, It reminds me of something that I've been thinking about in terms of how people communicate with each other online. And the fact that on websites like Twitter, we often use... uh, structures that have been handed down to us through memes to speak to each other right so that leads to a lot of uh kind of sarcasm and and kind of crude ways of of speaking and uh, there's a thinker who i have a lot of time for named connor habib who suggested recently that that was in itself a demon that needed to be fought off Uh, and he suggested attempting to begin speaking in ways that a lot of normal people quote unquote, would find very bizarre, right? So you're walking out of a movie and you say that you know watching that movie was like eating purple, you know? Now people are going to think that you're a little weird, but you're doing something very specific with that. And I think you're taking back the initial purpose of language, right? If you think of language as this kind of beast that has a chain around its neck now, and we're kind of pretending that we're the masters of this thing, letting language do its thing again will have a, uh, a kind of echo effect in culture at large. Uh, and I think it's, it's that complicated and it's that simple, right? We've got to stop with the banalities of speech, right? Enough with the, you know, how's the weather, you know, how's, how's this and that, you know, um, this kind of uh, small talk, right? No more small talk. Get, get weird with people, you know? Um, there's a guy who came to mow my lawn today out of nowhere and he and I had a very strange but brief conversation, uh, and it really felt like two people uh, who are you know, individuals but also part of the collective, you know, he lives in my neighborhood, uh, who are kind of um, two worlds coming together. And I think that there is ceremony in that simple act, right? I, th- I think that this really cannot be overstated in its importance of taking language back is what I mean.
1: I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that, that this is the fundamental turning point that that the human species is is facing now. If we're going to deal with physical and environmental survival, I think it begins as as we began with language. Um, I mean, you 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 know, you just used the word sarcastic a few moments ago. You know, you think about that. That come the Greek root of that means to tear flesh.
0: No way, really. You know,
1: yeah. I didn't yeah. know that.
0: I didn't know that at all. I mean, that's
1: that's about as physical and tactile as you can possibly get. And this kind of thing is happening second to second with the language that we use, where people are are not aware of what's embedded and alive within these words. And if unless we can regain awareness. I think that we're going to come to an unbridgeable situation in terms of, of social discourse, uh, any kind of agreement, any kind of cooperative and collaborative uh, work. I mean, it's it, it really, we have the, the idea of community hinges on language, and to regain community We're going to have to regain a a new primal awareness of the power of language.
0: Yes, 100 percent, because it comes back to that uh, monster that you mentioned your students inventing. A community is going to be a collective full of uh, individual islands of people interpreting language in their own way. And a problem that we have with solving the issues of the day is that we all can't agree on one type of language to describe a problem. And what we don't realize is that the attempting to come to a consensus on the language that we're using is the problem in and of itself. We have to become comfortable with everybody speaking a different language. It's like uh, a, a more, a more fun and jovial Tower of Babel situation, right? We need a Tower of Babel where everyone's kind of cool with it, right? Where we have yeah. a, a, a commons area that we can hang out, but that, because what that will do, again, it will echo out into these larger problems, where it's like we're not going to agree exactly, but I can feel what you're saying intuitively through the painting that your language is doing in my mind in the interpretive process that it's going through in there and vice versa. And we're going to come to some kind of, not even a, not even a consensus where we're both sort of upset, but where we both understand, right? We, we, we understand through not understanding. And I think that this is, um, to me, one of the coolest things that we've talked about in a long time, <laughs> in a lot of episodes. So this is the Patreon content, folks. This is the this is the really this is the meaty stuff. We were just waiting for the right uh, area to do it, and not that the other episodes weren't great, but you know what I mean. I'm having a lot of fun.
1: I, I think this is a, a good indication of where we're, where we're going to get to uh, with, with these segments. is is a deeper dive, uh, a bit more structured thought, and and really rattling some chains in terms of, of what ideas uh, hold together and, and what don't. I love the idea of, of kind of a Tower of Babel with a commons area. I think that's a, that's a great image. Uh, that, that shows the power of, of image. Uh, I had a, I flashed on, a, we, we had earlier touched on um, the anthropologist and psychologist Gregory Bateson And one of his key insights, which I just think is so beautifully said, a statement contains information in proportion or as a factor of its unpredictability. Mm. And I absolutely love that because I think it's a challenge to us all to not switch off, you know, to not just expect the familiar speech, to not... Uh, deal constantly in, in in a social courtesy sort of world that's actually increasingly empty uh, of meaning. Um, yes. But here's a terrifying statistic. Okay. Roughly speaking, uh, there's a bit of disagreement on the on on the exact numbers, but but in in ballpark terms there are a little over a million words that are considered part of the English language today. And English draws on more uh, foreign languages than any other language, um, Mm. any of the other major languages. Technology has not surprisingly been a huge contributor to uh, neologisms in the last, since 1984, and it is escalating. But here's the kicker, okay? The other statistic is that the average vocabulary is collapsing, decaying, declining, degrading down to around 3,000 words.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So look at that proportion of difference. Perhaps, okay, a million, I mean, no one's going to use a million words, but, mm-hmm. but look at the intense variety versus the actual use Mm-hmm. And I think that can be seen uh, in so many aspects of our society. Look at the number of products that are out there versus what we actually use and, and really need. Um, I mean, it, 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 it shows the fundamental problem of modernity, just accelerating a kind of very superficial sense of variety for commercial reasons, mostly, and... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And completely degrading the ceremonial, communal, shared relationship, which was the beginning of everything.
0: Very well said. And with that, I think we're going to put a pin in that segment. We'll definitely return to that uh, because that might be one of the major thrusts of the show in general. I think there's a lot to tease out with that as I sort of go through my day to day, I will collect different thoughts and ideas and stories and bring them to you in this segment to kind of have a language corner almost because it can't be overstated how important that is. But what I, what I did want to get to in this hour, uh, was Jung was Carl Jung and, yeah, and, and yeah. The UFOs. So I think we got about a uh, half an hour left and I definitely wanted to make sure that we touched on that before we brought this to a close. So would you like to, uh, Present, present your your findings, sir.
1: Yeah, I think there's a nice segue from from language and categories of thought. Gilbert Riles, the British philosopher is another one of our heroes who talks about the the confusion that comes from category mistakes of using the same word or the same concept very differently, and and when two people, for instance, don't acknowledge the difference. One of the the, the problems that Jung faced in writing about the UFO phenomenon was being pigeonholed into, are UFOs real? And his answer to that is so important because real is one of these fault line words. Uh, Natural might be another one where people bandy them about all the time, and yet they have enormous philosophical resonance, depth, and implications. And it's very, very easy to to use them in completely different ways. And, I mean, when people say, get real, I hate, that's one of the things, I just, you know, keeping it real, you know, it's like...
0: Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, man, it just drives me nuts. But I mean, so Jung's first problem was as, you know, both uh, a clinically trained psychologist and one of the great mythographers and and students of cultural mythology. He wanted to look at the phenomenon of UFOs in terms of what it tells us about collective thought uh, in our time. And he was not wanting to have to say, well, you know, do you believe in little green men and spaceships? And, and he really wanted us to look at, at the idea of what is real, as in what is significant, in, in non-purely materialist terms. Um, and I, I think that, that he, he really struggled with that. He, uh, was, he was very much misunderstood. He got into some strife with a letter uh, to AP the the press service back in 1958, which then was uh, people used to say, oh he's a, he's a UFO believer, you know, and here he is this crazy guy with these weird dreams, and he's right. trotting you know trotting out another um, sort of pop psych thing for our time, and that wasn't at all what he was doing. He he was really starting first of all with this is a is a. Body of belief that is shared by large numbers of people. It has some common features, and yet it has some points of interesting difference. Mm -hmm. And it has the capacity to change shape depending on where in the world and what time. Right. And it needs to be taken on board as something worth thinking about and asking questions about on its own terms. Right.
0: Right. I couldn't agree with that more. And I, I love that he, uh, you mentioned there that he was sort of pigeonholed by people as, you know, okay, here goes Jung again with, you know, engaging in these crazy conspiracy theories, right? And there seem to be two modes of thought with these kind of things, where you can take them on the one hand at a base level, which is unfortunately what many people do. Uh, are things real? Are we keeping it real on this podcast, Chris? I think that is that that's that's up, that's up for debate, um, and then there there's this much more interesting way of looking at it, where you say, "Look, I'm not concerned with whether this thing is real by your definition of what real actually is." What I'm saying is that there is a hefty amount of significance to these things, and there is sim- there's similarities across cultures with these things, right? And so. The, the end goal is not to, uh, in a sort of uh, 19th, 20th century safari-type way, you know, present the body of an alien to, to the greater public in a zoo or something, um, which was attempted in the 90s. There were several videos of alien autopsies. Do you remember those?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: I I would rent those and be completely freaked out by them. You know, as a huge X-Files nerd, I remember renting Alien Autopsy and being like, "Oh man, I wonder if that's if that's real or not, right?" But that's not the that's not the goal. Whether or not these, you know, tiny gray things with big black eyes physically exist in a way that we can point to them and touch them is completely inconsequential. That's that's what he's saying, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think what he's saying is perhaps not if not Inconsequential, it's not the right way to think of it. It's the wrong frame Yet. to put on a very complex uh, social and cultural phenomenon. And we need to, rather than you know, uh, narrow the frame, we need to expand the frame, which is kind of also the, the Charles Fort sort of position. Correct, um, yes. And it may not always be instantly clear how to do that, but... Um, I, I think this is where a lot of um a lot of people get very frustrated because they don't know well well how do we we expand the frame? Well one one answer is you, you have to give it some thought. You have to think about it. You can't just have an instant sort of answer. The whole world isn't full of instant answers that you can Google on. Mm-hmm. Um I mean I'm I'm terribly concerned about that uh Expectation being a dominant force mm-hmm. in uh gen z um mm-hmm. you know it, if it's not instant um and if there isn't an actual answer that you can kind of parrot in that small talk sort of way um there's a problem and and just there's too much of the world that just is is well well beyond that and thank goodness you yeah know? I, lo-
0: I love that you said that because one of the Commonly repeated uh, truisms on the internet is that you know you have the entire breadth and scope of human knowledge in your pocket right now. Well, no, you don't. You really don't. Um, you have a, a phone that has a bunch of advertisements on it, right? And if you if you want to kind of dig, Project Gutenberg is a great thing. Uh, you can purchase books on it. That's fantastic. But the idea of having a conversation with somebody, much in the same way as what we talked about earlier, where you know where we're trying to use language that isn't typically used to, to break ourselves out of these patterns. I would love to see people not look up answers to things on their phone. How many times have you seen that? When people are having a discussion, somebody will Google what they're saying and say, well, I mean, look, according to CNN, that's not true. Not only is that not fun, but that completely derails uh, possible new and interesting frames from which to talk about some of these problems. I'm, I'm convinced that a lot of the problems we have are not intractable, but are cut off at the knees, rather, when they just get going because people start to have, uh, well, technically, they bring well, technically, into the, into the conversation.
1: I couldn't agree more. I think this is epidemic. And to, to go back to uh, this uh, community in New Guinea, um, what my friend has said about, you know, their point of view is, yes, we live in a, in a community, you can call it a village. You look like you're living in, in ruins,
0: Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm.
1: they they don't see a, a living ecosystem of knowledge that people can access instantly on their phones. They see a degraded uh, paradise of learning mm-hmm. that is completely ignored and made more and more superficial and more and more glossed over. So it, it's it's the absence. It's the absolute reverse of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can see that in our education programs. It's. There's more in our computer databases. There's more in our libraries. There's more uh, total capability. But in terms of that pervasive level, no. Um,
0: I'm thinking of a tribe of Native Americans that are about to go out on a buffalo hunt, and perhaps a shaman puts on buffalo skins and performs some kind of ritual. They're in a sweat lodge, and they've all eaten peyote, uh, before they go out on this, on this hunt. And he's kind of trumping around in his Buffalo and he's communing with Buffalo, right? Uh, the great spirit and also Buffalo. And he's, you know, he's asking for a hunt. And then one of the hunters, you know, pulls out a phone and says, well, ho- hang on a second. I don't think he's really a <laughs> Buffalo. You know, <laughs> it's like, dude, come on, man. Like, w- what are you doing? That's uh, it's not the, it's not the point Right, Um, and also I I don't want the listeners to get the impression that I'm saying that uh, that ritual, that hypothetical ritual that I that I just described there, uh, is somehow fake, right? Because what we're saying is that no, that's actually that. If we're talking about what's real, uh, I would argue that that is real. That that is actually what that person is is doing. And I get to that point by uh not being colonialist in my thought um i don't want to get too much into a side note here but you know with all the you know decolonialization that i see going on in discourse around the internet nobody really wants to decolonialize uh the way that we think about spirits and magic right we we maintain a very uh western uh you know 18th 19th 20th century view of the way that these things work Whereas a real decolonial thought, I think, would begin to approach these these ways as modes of existing, as as modes of of being in the universe, and not dismiss them so readily out of out of hand. But I suppose that's a side note.
1: Well, no, it's. I don't think it's. I think it's very very important because I think that's absolutely one of the the paradoxes and contradictions is that uh, we we have some some very. Uh, delimited ideas on all of these other frames of reference that, that are potentially there. And the, I think there is a huge problem with that. Um, but just to go back to the, to the Jung thing, I, I think one mm-hmm. of the really practical uh, issues to come out of, of the UFO debate that he got involved in, and I think this is another thing, that, that when language gets degraded, when we don't see that we're blurring categories, we start to become inattentive on an ever-increasing scale. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: One of the points that he put forward, which just to me seems, you know, common sense, you know, Mm -hmm. he said, why is there necessarily one explanation for all of, of these incidents? Why does it have to be people are either crazy or this is wishful thinking, or there's a perfectly logical explanation, or somebody's lying and, and wants attention, or uh, there really are interdimensional beings. You know, it, it could be that there's a multiplicity
0: yeah.
1: of, of answers,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know? And I, I think in what area, what walk, what realm of life is that not true? right you know right
0: oh yeah yeah i would love to hear hear more about that um but i'm just immediately thinking of something like a, a practice of reading tarot cards right um and something that i learned taking a tarot class over on rune soup was this idea that um that there's um it's not a matter of whether or not the cards are telling your future or if a person is kind of faking, like a tarot reader is kind of faking it. It's this idea that the act of quote unquote faking it or pretending is necessary for the thing to come in existence in actuality. Right. Um, Right. Ritual is kind of the same way. Right. That person who puts on the Buffalo skin uh, is pretending in a sense, but who's to say that pretending isn't a fundamental uh, power that humans have that leads to something other than, than fakery, right? Not a magic trick with without a K, but magic with a K. Um, go ahead. Taylor. I
1: think this is the heart of the of the whole deal, and I think there is a very very peculiar uh, connotative suspicion about all of these things. And the suspicion, you know, started with with language to a large extent. That, that language was magical and powerful, but it could also be deceptive that it could be sophistry, that it could be fancy and, and meant to confuse, to obfuscate, not to reveal. And so we have these, these conflicted feelings about the core cultural magics that define humanity, uh, which is to say we, we have an enormous uh, self-esteem problem at, at the heart of, of the human story. and and. We've found the perfect mechanism to broadcast this in the internet and social media, mm-hmm. uh, which is almost a you know a spectacle of, of self-esteem crisis and and shouting back and forth and and you know googling on whatever stats that we don't really believe in, you yeah. know yeah. Um, yeah.
0: No, spectacle is definitely the word for it. And I think that what we're witnessing is again people who can't make peace with the idea that two things can be true at the same time. That if you really boil it down, that's what we're looking at. You know, people who are arguing about almost anything online at any given time. They're arguing over semantic definitions of things when they really break down to it. I see this all the time with uh you know, arguments about stuff like um communism there's this really funny uh study that my brother was a part of where they basically quizzed a bunch of sort of uh, right-wing republican people and asked them if they were for communism and they all said no and then they in the same questionnaire they sort of asked them you know well do you think that uh that people all deserve access to health care right and do you think that people um deserve a living wage that, you know, that people should work in communities to get, and they're basically hitting all these points of Marxism and communism. Right. And the person agrees with them on their face. Right. But you can't say communism because then that word has all these connotations that they don't really want to be a part of. So what you end up with, as you said, is this kind of spectacle of everyone arguing over what reality is and what it should be. Right. Um, when in a fa- in actuality, it's, it's, mi- Reality is many different becomings, to use a delusian term. Right? It's many. Right. It's many. Many occurrences happening all at once um, through language.
1: Well, you know, in really practical, sort of everyday look around us, terms we seem to have, you know, lost sight of of you know the possibility of, of convergence of many factors, you know, we're ruled by the cause and effect binary as if everything is, is perfectly linear. And uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, quotations from Ulysses S. Grant, he had, he had a couple of good lines, which I think he actually did write. Some people say he was ghostwritten, but I like this. He says, just because two men go into the woods to fight a duel doesn't mean there isn't a third already there hmm. and you know he leaves it completely open what that means and what will happen I mean is the is there going to be an ambush yeah. uh you know yeah. we, we don't know it's it's really um and uh and there's here's another I've i lost this cartoon but I I it was just wonderful uh these two really bumbling tourists have found this spaceship with a dying alien. Mm -hmm. And the alien is struggling to, to, you know, with with last breath and some sort of weird juice emerging from its head. is trying to sort of give one, you know, extraterrestrial insight. And the remark is, Oswald acted alone and I just think that is a beautiful gloss on conspiracy theories. You know, it's just like, I don't know. I, 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 oh, I think of that in my so mind funny. and I laugh, you know.
0: That's great. I love that. I really like that Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, I, I'm going to have to, that's almost, a, I mean, it is a koan, really, in a, in a sense because i'd have to think on that for quite some time to, to get to it cuz i don't i don't yeah. on, i don't i don't necessarily subscribe to the kind of um, notion that oh it means that there's you know somebody hiding in there to, to kill the both of them i mean I, I start to think of some kind of strange metaphysical idea that you know that there's a there's a person who's going like the third person who's already there is the one who's going to walk out right in a sense they're both going in there to die uh and a third is walking out but even that might might be a little bit too you know pedestrian for it it's just an endless bottomless kind of you know thought experiment that you could think about for days so i really i really love that that's great stuff
1: I'm glad, you know, it would be something interesting to research what, what people's reactions to that, their interpretations, um, you know, and, and this is another you know, way to think of, of the problem that we face culturally today is that I think people are terrified of the challenge of interpretation, Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. they want the freedom they want the individuality to build their own burger and to have their own take you know what's your take on the you know it's like that kind of thing but yet if there actually is a challenge of interpretation and thinking well i i'm not sure what to make of that i don't really know what just happened uh I'm going to have to think about this some more. I'm going to have to do, some, you know, that kind of thing. It, it really stops people in their tracks. And I think it's more than just laziness. I think it's really fear.
0: Oh, yeah, it's, it's fear for sure. I think that we see that in people's kind of visceral reaction to the, the modern art world. Um, I think being confronted by a strange sculpture or a strange painting makes people kind of angry. There's that popular documentary film, My Kid Could Draw That, where there's this six-year-old girl who's doing Pollock-esque paintings and, you know, it's all supposed to be very, very funny. Um, But I think that when you are confronted with a Pollock or, you know, a Rothko or somebody like that, who, by the way, did you know that they were, uh, that the CIA sort of funded those, those two guys uh, during the Cold War?
1: You know, I've heard stories about that. I mean, there's so much weird shit going on. That was such a moment in yeah. in New York City, such a meeting ground of people. Mm-hmm. And there were a few others. Uh, I mean, de Kooning, I think, was, was, Kooning, was in yeah. that too. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: I mean, there was some definitely some weird things going on. And, I mean, one of the, the great appeals, uh, uh, I think, about the CIA is... They're just this, uh, you know, almost Disney corporation of crazy, crazy possible oh, ideas yeah. where, oh, yeah. where almost anything's possible.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You say the CIA did it. Probably. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not hard to just say, you know, probably. But, you know, the thing about with the art, with the, the Pollocks and the Rothko's and really anything that you confront and you don't quite get at first. There's too often this reaction from people that they feel like somebody's trying to get something over on them or that this person is pretentious and thinks that they're better than them. All this very strange projection begins to happen, but art at its best, which since 2016 it has not been at its best because it has been concerned almost exclusively with, um, you know, sort of satiating the bloodlust of the, you know, the kind of upper-class liberal curators of different galleries, right? So it's become this kind of very base, you know, Trump bad uh, style of, um, of, of art making. But when it's weird and it's abstract and it makes you think what it's really doing is it's inviting you to sit and just think about what you're seeing for a second. You know, so many galleries are these, you know, white spaces, these blank spaces with little tiny pictures on the wall. Sometimes, sometimes they're bigger than that. Um, But that is, that white space is really supposed to reflect the blankness that you are supposed to, you know, bring your state of mind into when you're entering into the gallery space so that you can contemplate this one thing and not arrive at one answer, right? It's a generator. It's a machine for, I hate using that word, but it's a machine for, you know, beginning to think about uh, what it's like to be alive and what it's like to be in the year, you know, 2021, or, you know, what it was like to be in the year 1967. Um, These, it's supposed to leave you with many things, right? Art and koan are are very similar in that way. And again, we can't get there if we're so focused on the fact-checking, right? On the, what does it mean, right? (laughs) On, you know, this isn't a portrait, you know, you've seen George W. Bush. Yeah. He draws those, <laughs> por- those portraits now and people are like, Oh, he's such a cute old man. Who's, you know, responsible for over a million deaths, right? Like a complete monster. Um, but you know, it's so cute. He's drawing puppies and soldiers and all this kind of, because it's something you can easily wrap your head around what he's doing. But man, that's to me, that's just, that's not what art is, uh, is supposed to do.
1: Well, you know, a couple of thoughts about that. Um, In in the Lawrence Weschler book about Robert Irwin, there's a lovely line. It's very simple again, but that that Irwin's goal is to slow the viewer down.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know,
1: and I think that's a lovely, lovely idea. And that that gets me thinking about, well, you know, everyone talks about the pace of life and everything, you know, being so speedy. And so... uh, I wonder about, if you had to say, if you had to describe the problem of this contemporary era in terms of uh, a drug, what would it be? I mean, we both had, you know, our drug experiences and our, Mm -hmm. you know, perhaps drug problems. I mean, Mm -hmm. would you say that our problem is speed? Is it an opioid is it meth metaphorically i'm talking about not 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 that we don't have major drug problems i i Mm -hmm. I, I, you know we obviously do sure sure but if we were in a in a philip k dick novel Mm -hmm. what would the nature of the of the drug be
0: something between huxley's soma and uh an ssri is where i'd put us right now um i would i would put it in a kind of uh a very distracted. Um, by the way, uh, I recently read that Huxley was writing Brave New World um, somewhat uncritically. Uh, he, he thought that that might actually be a good idea for the way that society might go, um, which is neither here nor there. But the SSRI, I think, is the most important, because like, when you have, encounter somebody who is on antidepressants, and uh, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're on an antidepressant to combat some you know, horrible mental illness. Um, you have my, my total sympathy and I'm, I'm not trying to bag on you or anything like that, but there is a certain, uh, characteristic of feeling, uh, sort of nothing, right. Um, this is what I hear from that people have told me who are sort of on these drugs. Um, there it's not so much that, uh, you know, that they become happy, it's that they feel sort of nothing at all. They kind of walk through life in this sort of, you know, zombie state. And again, you know, if, if this is something it's really hard to talk about because, you know, I definitely I wouldn't want to make anyone feel shitty because mental illness is a real thing, something that I've suffered from in the past and suffer from today. Uh, I've gotten to the point where I've, you know, looked up online, you know, well, what would I have to take to sort of make this thing go away? And I've just, you know... For better or worse, made the decision not to do that, but I think that um, I think that you could really uh, kind of metaphorically say that that's what our society is on right now, right? Is this this like this kind of feeling of not being in touch with God in spirituality? Um, this feeling of everything being sort of very literal and shallow and surface level and paper, um, and then you kind of mix that in with. Um, with the constant dopamine soma rush of Netflix and Twitter right, and it's this very um disorienting cocktail I think that that has the kind of entire world in this state of uh, uh alternating between apathy and uh you know complete psychic dissonance and rage what what about you where would you put it at
1: i i I think that's i I think that's uh pretty good i don't know if i could really uh adjust that 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 brings some several things that i've thought of to uh into focus um my uh i have very conflicted feelings about uh these kinds of drugs i i've i've heard very different reports from people Mm -hmm. by and large my my um my anecdotal intuitive uh response is is exactly what you've said it's it's really a flattening of affect it's it, I wouldn't I think zombification is is, is going too far mm-hmm. but I, I think it is um, a way of controlling some very necessary uh, engagement with the world in such a way that things become more and more... Predictable. And if we go back to that Gregory Bateson line that, you know, messages are about unpredictability, I think what we're trying to do is control surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, I, when I write about, um, you know, the imagination and ways to cognitively um, enhance it in my textbook, and I'm sure there will be people who will take issue with that, that they'll think, well, this is an innate, you know. Uh, capability and some people have it and some people don't and I I, I don't accept that. Um, but one of the three key elements is is the capacity for and the enjoyment of surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it the welcome ambush because surprise come is a word come does come from a military context a hunting context of you know surprise in that ambush sense. Uh, but yet without surprise without uh novelty uh we just die inside and i I think that that or we become ravenous Mm. for more superficial novelty and we see that everywhere we turn we're going to binge on netflix we're going to binge on the you know binge is one a, a word that has just shot up in frequency yeah um and we mean that in all ways. We mean that eating. We mean that consuming products. We mean it in terms of uh, consuming culture. Uh, it, it's 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 really really uh, a, a scary scary thing. So I think I think you're you're on track with that. Um, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do want to throw out that I apologize for the word zombification. I'm glad that you corrected me on that because that is too extreme of a word, right? I don't want to give the impression that I'm you know, somehow, uh, you know, a, just a regular guy in a horde full of zombies. That's neither fair nor accurate to how I, I feel about the whole thing. But the flattening of affect and the uh, the kind of lack of surprise, which leads to binging, I think is a kind of perfect encapsulation of what I meant to say. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that that's a pretty good space for now for us to wrap up, although we will be picking this back up on the Patreon half of our next episode um i think chris and i are going to try to not have too many uh you know um uh competing narratives going on right so we don't want it to be like two shows um but we do want to keep some of this stuff as you know if you've listened to this you you might be able to tell like we did get a little spicier than we normally do on the on the uh, free show so we do want to kind of keep that that element going, but what do you say, Chris? Is, do you think that's uh, that'll do it for today? Did you have any parting uh, thoughts? Uh,
1: uh, well, I would plan to see is is uh, where where we might head from this discussion, picking up on few of uh, the points, including uh, Bigfoot. Um, I, I think that we we could talk about imaginary friends, oh, which is a yeah. very interesting topic. I mean, we're yeah. both writers. We kind of traffic in imaginary friends. You've got, uh, you know, a new baby. We've got a lot of complicated ideas about imaginary friends. And I think that might be a very fruitful uh, topic for next time.
0: Perfect. Well, until that time, folks, thanks so much for listening. Thank you for subscribing to the Patreon. um, And we will talk to you next time.
1: Yeah, thanks, everyone. Take care.